And please open your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 15. And as you're turning there, it's rather fitting and immensely encouraging thing to be beginning a new year here in worship, to be looking to Christ as we seek to follow him, as we seek to live faithful and fruitful lives in a new year. And as we gaze upon the horizon of 2023, there is both light and shadow. There are dates perhaps already circled and starred, occasions to celebrate, a birth, a wedding, an anniversary, a long-awaited promotion, retirements, or an overdue family vacation. Yet there are perhaps other dates that loom a bit more ominously an upcoming doctor's appointment, the realities of a devastating diagnosis, financial concerns, performance reviews, or the tragic anniversary of a death or loss that still haunts your days. Or or perhaps amidst the light and the shadow, your horizon contains a rather odd assortment of questions. Perhaps a season of change or transition is quickly approaching, So while there are many rather crucial questions, as of yet, there are still few answers. So with the good, the bad, and the unknown swirling and twirling about the horizon of a new year, brothers and sisters, it is well and good for us to be reminded about who our Savior, Jesus Christ, is. And this Advent season, it's been particularly fitting to have been studying the I am, Jesus' I am statements. Because how better to know who Jesus is than by studying the very things that he says about himself. Which brings us to our passage today, John 15. Because the disciples sitting in that upper room found themselves facing realities not so different from our own. Life, as they knew it, was about to change. And here in the upper room discourse, Jesus is giving his disciples their marching orders. These were some of his final instructions and words of encouragement for them. For he knew his time with them was short. For he would be leaving soon to go to the cross. And soon after that, he would be ascending to his father's right hand. So how are they going to make it without him? Without his physical presence being in their midst, what would they need in order to not only survive, but to thrive? Because remember what Jesus says in John 10, that Jesus' whole reason for coming was that his disciples, that his followers might have life and have it in abundance. So in John 14, Jesus promises to send the Holy Spirit, a helper. Which brings us to the eighth and final I am statement of Jesus. I am the vine. And we, his followers, his disciples, are the branches. So as we come to John 15, verses 1 through 17, there is much here to ponder and to reflect upon. Yet for this morning, I want us to key in on three things from our text. 
our fruitful purpose, the fruitful place, and the first fruits of a productive life. So if you'll read along as I read aloud, John 15, verses 1 through 17. Hear now the word of the Lord. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it might bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into a fire and burned. If you abide in me, my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. Thus far, God's holy word. Well, first point this morning is our fruitful purpose. Verse 1, Jesus declares himself to be the true vine, and that his Father is the vine dresser. And a little while later in verse 5, he says that we are the branches. Vines would have been a little more commonplace in first century Palestine than our own day. Yet some 2,000 years later, Jesus' imagery here is no less poignant, significant, or insightful. Yet here at the start, we need to notice something in verse 1. Jesus doesn't just say, I am the vine, as he does later in verse 5. But here at the outset that he is the true vine, which alerts us to the existence of a false vine or perhaps even a failed or derelict vine. A vine with an extensive and fairly well-known Old Testament backdrop. From our call to worship this morning from Psalm 80 to the prophets Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah, there are numerous references to a vine in the Old Testament. But what exactly is the Old Testament referring to when it speaks of a vine? Isaiah 5.7 puts it rather simply. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. The vine in the Old Testament then is referring to God's covenant people. 
Yet what is the significance? What is the purpose of Israel being a vine? Let's keep it simple. What's the purpose of a grapevine? To produce grapes. Friends, we must recognize that we have an intentional God. A God who created humanity, who created us with and for a purpose. As Genesis 1 tells us, we were created to fill the earth and to subdue it. To be fruitful and to multiply. And to take dominion by literally expanding the boundaries of Eden until one day it would fill the whole world. And despite what happened in the fall, God's original intention and purpose for us doesn't go away. No, it can be found traipsing its way throughout the story of redemption. Because our intentional God has an intended purpose for his people. It's an intention that we see in Genesis chapter 12. When God calls Abram to leave his country and his kindred behind. And to go to a land that the Lord was preparing for him. A place where the Lord would bless him and make him into a great nation. Yet in blessing him, God would make Abram a blessing to all the nations, all the families of the earth. You see, God has an intended purpose for his people. That they would be a blessing whereby the Lord would bless the world. So when the Old Testament refers to God's people as a vine, it's referring to this purposeful intention of our God. That his people are blessed in order to be a blessing. That what we discover in Psalm 80, in Ezekiel 17, in Jeremiah 2, in Isaiah 5, is that despite the rich soil in which this vine had been planted, despite God's many and abundant blessings, the vine of Israel, the vine of God's people, had become a wild and derelict vine, yielding only the embittered and soured grapes of sin, injustice, and idolatry. You see, the Old Testament imagery of the vine represents one of the greatest points of failure and shame for the people of God. That despite the richness and the vastness of God's blessing upon them, that they fell short of the what and the who God had called and commanded them to be. That rather than pursuing righteousness, they had instead chased after their sin. They had worshipped other gods. And had done what was right and good in their own eyes. Choosing to live a life of folly rather than that of wisdom. And as we consider their failures, I invite us to ponder our own. To consider our sin. To consider our calling in the many ways that we all fall short of the what and the who our God has called and commanded us to be. How we all have failed. And daily struggle with even the two most basic of God's commands. To love God and to love people. How oftentimes, despite God's many blessings upon us, our lives aren't reaping the fruit that they should be. And the point of this consideration is not that we would feel a sense of spiritual rubby grubs. But merely that if we don't recognize our sin we don't see our desperate need, our hopeless estate, 
the hope, the life that Jesus proclaims to us in this passage will fall upon deaf ears. Because if we don't know the bad news, why would we need the good news? Yet my prayer is that we might listen to our Savior as he proclaims about himself, I am the true vine. And what he means is that where Israel has failed, where you and I have come up short, Jesus, our Savior, hasn't. For Jesus lived the perfect and sinless life we should have lived. Jesus' life bore the fruit that our lives should have borne. You see, Jesus has done what we could not. He has succeeded where we have failed. And it is his life, his death, his resurrection and ascension that has secured for us not only redemption, not only the forgiveness of sins, but a new life in him. The truly abundant life, because it is a life found only in the true vine. And notice that while Jesus is the vine, his father is the vine dresser. And since he's the creator of the universe, let's just assume he's rather good at his job. Which is to ensure that the branches bear much fruit. The production of fruit then shapes what the vine dresser does and how he does it. And in verse 2, we see two types of branches. Those that bear fruit and those that don't. Yet in verse 2, both branches are subject to the sharp and cutting reality of the vine dresser's blade. For the branches not bearing fruit, the vine dresser takes them away. And as verse 6 warns us, he takes them away to be burned. Friends, one thing this passage makes incredibly clear is that the life-giving, life-illuminating sap or nourishment of the true vine will inevitably and indelibly bear fruit in our lives. Because the grace of our God changes things. It changes us. The hard question then is, what then does it mean if your life has borne no fruit? If God's grace has borne no change in you. Friend, it means you are still in your sin. You are still separated from life in God. That you will one day stand before a holy God and be found not in Christ, but in your sin. For there are no other options. And on that day, your church attendance, your charitable donations, your atomic habits your accomplishments, your wealth, your power, your legacy, and anything and everything else that you are clinging to for life will fail you and will betray you. Friend, do you see what the true vine offers you this morning? To quote John Bunyan, life, life, eternal life. For you see, it's only by the sap, it's only by the sustenance, it's only by the nourishment of the true vine that we can produce the fruits of an eternal life. The fruit we bear then is not something that we can manufacture ourselves, but it is something that comes only through life in the vine. And the eternality of life in the vine will necessarily bear much fruit. Not because of the vitality of the branch in and of itself, 
but because of the vitality found in the vine. And here in this passage, Jesus would have us consider whether or not we are a branch connected to the vine. Are we alive in him? So are you? Because what he offers to us in the gospel is life, life, eternal life, life rooted in him. And while Jesus alerts the fruitless branch to this great warning, he also alerts the fruitful branch of a rather stark reality. For the vine dresser's blade cuts and snips those fruitful branches that he might prune them in order that they might bear more fruit. Which is to say that the Lord isn't all that interested in the unproductive growth of his branches. Growing tomatoes is a long-running and time-honored tradition in the Hogan household. And part of caring for and tending to a tomato vine is from time to time is plucking those little suckers. Plucking those little sprouts that while they are completely harmless to the vine, they serve very little purpose and use up much needed nutrients to grow, to grow rather than the production of fruit. See, brothers and sisters, growth isn't necessarily the vine dresser's goal. Fruit is. Yet dare I say it, pruning isn't always a pleasant experience for a branch. It can be rather painful and devastating at times. Sometimes the Lord prunes where we think we should grow. And sometimes he takes a little more off the top than we were really wanting him to. And our Father does this, not always in a form of discipline, though at times he does. But mainly so that we might bear more fruit. That we might stay close to Jesus, our vine. Again, our God is an intentional God. Which means that there is great intentionality in his pruning. Which in the pain and the mess of being pruned can be a difficult reality to hold on to. 2022 may have been a year of much pruning for you. Or perhaps 2023 will be. Yet branches like us, branches grafted into the vine, can have the confidence that our God prunes in order that our growth would be productive and fruitful. For we serve a sovereign God. A God who controls and rules over all things, yet in his providence, he wields that sovereignty for the good of those who love him, even as he prunes and trims trims us in order that we might bear much fruit. Therefore, every unkind word, every haughty look, every disappointment, every sorrow, every frustration that we endure is an opportunity to draw life not from this world, but from the vine. For as I've said, our God and our Lord isn't interested in our unproductive growth, but growth that bears the fruits of righteousness. So then how do we actually bear fruit? Where do we go? What do we need to do in order to be more productive? Which leads us to our second point. The fruitful place. Friends, we live in a world 
that is obsessed with questions and issues of efficiency and longevity. That's why the majority of New Year's resolutions revolve around some iteration of the following, getting healthier, getting more organized, more efficient, more capable, or more disciplined. Trying to build and create habits that will have a long-term impact or benefit upon our lives. Because we all wrestle with questions like, how do we get more done in less time? And how do we do it with less stress? Like, how do we improve our productivity and output? How do we not just live longer, but live better for a longer period of time? And from the books we read, the podcasts we listen to, to the promotional emails sitting in our inboxes, within all of us is, is a desire to unlock the secrets of a better and more productive life. And in the church and in the culture, there are an awful lot of competing voices. Voices offering their take, their unique take, their recipe, their step-by-step plan or formula that will unlock a better you. Because that desire strikes at something intrinsic to our nature. A desire and a longing to be productive. Because we have a God who created and designed us to work, to get things done, to produce. The question is how? How do we live a productive life? Well, in John 15, we hear Jesus' voice. And he gives us his answer to that question. And it's not a recipe for success. It's not a step-by-step program. No, what he offers us is a place to be. We find it in verse 4, abide in me and I in you. And then again in verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For, For apart from me, you can do nothing. See, according to Jesus, the key to a fruitful and more productive life is not found in sleeping better. It's not found in working out more or eating less, although those can certainly be good and helpful things. No, in Jesus' mind, the most vital component of the productive life is to abide in him. In other words, to stay close to Jesus. See, rather than giving us something to do, a honey list to complete, or some objective to accomplish, Jesus gives us a place to be. A place to be with him. For in his presence there is, as the psalmist says, fullness of joy. A place to abide and to reside. A place of nourishment, learning, challenging, strength, rejuvenation, and joy. And a place wherein we will bear much fruit. So then how do we abide in Christ? How do we stay close to Jesus? To answer that, I want us to consider three important questions. Are we washed? Are we abiding? And how is God at work? So the first question, are you washed? Because to abide in Christ, we must actually be in Christ. So do we believe the gospel? Do we believe in the sufficiency of Christ's work on our behalf to redeem sinners like us from the destruction and the devastation of sin? I mean, have a look down to verse 3. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Remember the context of our passage. We're in the upper room. And this whole discussion, this whole meal begins in a rather shocking fashion. With Jesus, the Son of God, 
stooping on his hands and knees to wash his disciples' feet. And when Jesus comes to Simon Peter, Peter has a bit of a meltdown, saying, you shall never wash my feet. To which Jesus answered him, saying, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Friends, Jesus must wash us clean because we can't do it ourselves. But if he has washed us by his precious blood, we are cleansed of all unrighteousness, of all of our sin, all of our failure, past, present, and future. For Jesus has taken upon himself the guilt and the wrath that our sins deserve. So in taking our sin and giving to us his righteousness, that we are declared righteous and we can enjoy and live in the benefits and the realities of our union and communion with Christ. So you see, brothers and sisters, our standing, our place before God is not based upon our performance or even our productivity, but upon the performance and the productivity of Christ on our behalf. Our sin Our shame has been nailed to a cross and we bear it no more. So now we enter into God's presence with a merit not our own, but rooted in Christ alone. And it is there, it is in his presence where we are to abide. Which takes us to our second question. So are we abiding? Jesus tells us that apart from him, left merely to our own willpower, our own grit and determination, we, as verse 5 says, can do nothing. See, Jesus, he isn't interested in our atomic habits, but in our eternal one. Our eternal habit of abiding in him and in his presence. You see, we have been united to Christ, and nothing in all of creation can separate us from this union. And friends, what that means is that abiding in Christ is not just something we do in this life, but will be something we will, we, we, we will do starting now and for the rest of eternity. Yet to quote a famous hymn, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. You see, we need help to abide. As we've already mentioned, God the Father helps us to abide by pruning us. As the great and glorious vine dresser who loves and cares for us, his branches, our God graciously works to ensure that our lives bear fruit. And he does so by pruning us, by pruning our unproductive growth, that we might abide more in Christ. Friends, the gracious and hopeful reality that we must recognize is that in the gospel, The labors of abiding in Christ are far more a labor of God's hands than our own. So that in our abiding in Christ, we magnify not our works, but the works that our God has done. Yet practically, what does day-by-day abiding in Christ look like? Well, notice verse 7. Jesus tells us a bit more of what this life in the vine looks like by saying, If you abide in me... And my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. How then do we stay close to Jesus? Well, through the simple means of the word of God and through prayer. So friends, are we abiding in Christ? 
Particularly, are we abiding with him through the means which he himself has given us to abide with? For part of abiding in Christ is abiding with him through his word and in prayer. You see, we are given these means through which we are to abide with him, to draw near to him, to experience his presence. Namely, we were given what the reformers called the means of grace, God's word, prayer, and the sacraments. Now then, these are not means by which we earn or merit grace, but means by which we receive it, experience it, and we abide and reside in God's gracious presence. In other words, we stay close to Jesus as we stay close to him in his word and in prayer and through the sacraments. So then part of of abiding in Christ is abiding in these means day after day after day. And by casting aside all that hinders, all that distracts us from doing so. So as we begin a new year, are we making these means a priority in our lives? Are we allowing God's word to saturate our lives every day? To let it saturate how we think, how we react and understand and interpret the world that surrounds us. So that when life cuts at us, and it will, that we bleed scripture. And as we enter a new year, is prayer seen as a priority? Or is it merely a last ditch effort? Are we seeking God's wondrous presence and his will through communion with God in prayer? And as we abide in these means, God does amazing things. Which brings us to our third question, how is God at work in you? Because brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, God is at work. He is on the move. So we may be, so may we be an observant people. Constantly on the lookout for the big ways and the more subtle ways that God is at work and moving in our lives and in the lives of others. Brothers and sisters, are we captivated by the handiwork of our God? Yes, in creation, but also in the lives of other people. His people. Friends, the grace of the gospel changes things. And our lives bear the fruit of that change as the gospel permeates every square inch of our lives. So as we day by day abide in Christ, as we stay close to Jesus, are we, as the hymn encourages us, to count our many blessings, to name them one by one, for in doing so it will surprise us the great things that the Lord has done. Which brings us to our final point this morning. What are the first fruits of the productive life? Well, from our passage, we see that they are joy and love. So let's start with joy. Have a look down to verse 11, where Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Now, our culture tends to confuse and to conflate joy with happiness, thinking of them as synonymous terms, but they're not the same thing. Biblical joy is a far more robust and resilient concept. Whereas happiness is rather fleeting and circumstantial. Joy, on the other hand, abides not necessarily in its exuberance, but in its resolute confidence. The reformer John Calvin defined joy as a quiet gladness of heart, as one contemplates the goodness of God's saving grace in Christ Jesus. 
The famed preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones defined joy as the response and reaction of the soul to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And another theologian defines joy as a cheerful confidence in God's presence to comfort and God's power to deliver. Happiness then finds its roots in the shallow soil of our circumstances, while joy is rooted down deep in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. For while our circumstances can change in mere moments, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if our joy be found in Christ, that joy will, like like Christ, abide with us forever. And as our passage tells us, when Jesus does joy, he doesn't do it in half measures. His aim is that we would be filled to the brim and overflowing with joy. Therefore, the fruit that life in the vine produces in us is a joy rooted in who God is and what he has done for us. Which means ours is a joy that can't be pried from our fingers. Ours is a joy that's not determined by our circumstances. Because while happiness comes and goes, what Christ has accomplished on our behalf will stand the test of eternity. The mountains may crumble into the the sea and the stars may fall in all around us. Yet we will be forever with the Lord. And by way of brief application, brothers and sisters, we live, we live in an entitled age that despite our culture's embarrassment of riches, despite there being so much wealth, so much affluence and comfort, there remains so little joy. From message boards to comment sections and everywhere in between, complaints seem to exist and to abide at the tip of every tongue. So my question is, are we, as God's people, any different? Are we, the people of God, gripped and captivated by our joy in the Lord or or by our complaints? For we must remember that our Savior lived, died, and rose again, that you and I might be a joy-filled people. So my prayer for myself and for you as we enter into a new year is that together we might abide in Christ and thereby thereby our lives might be filled to the brim with the fruit of an abundant joy. Second first fruit is love. If we look down to verses 12 and 13, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Then again in verse 17, these things I have commanded you this so that you will love one another. God's love for us has both a vertical and horizontal relational impact. Because as we abide in Christ and in his love, we learn to love not only what Christ loves, but also who Christ loves namely our brothers and sisters in Christ. See, during that, this same conversation in the upper room, way back in John 13, Jesus says that the world might know that we are his disciples by how we love one another. Brothers and sisters, how we treat one another, how we think of one another, how we interact and forgive one another matters. If we love what Christ loves, 
then we will love one another as he first loves us. And that love should be sacrificial as God's love for us is sacrificial. It should be patient as God's love for us is patient. That's why perhaps the greatest apologetic of the Christian faith is found in how we treat, how we love one another in Christ. And in a culture that has never been more connected, yet never felt more alone, what we possess as the community of faith is truly an attractional community. Not because of smoke machines or really good coffee, but because what brings us together and keeps us together is the love of God. A love that unites us to Christ and a love that unites us one to another in Christ, our true vine. So are we allowing that love, God's love for us, his people, to reshape our priorities, to reshape our calendars, and to redirect the hustle and the bustle of our lives? One conclusion, as we begin a new year, as the light and the shadow of 2023 appear upon the horizon, what is your utmost priority? What is your greatest resolve? May it be to abide more in Christ, to draw near and to stay near to him, to experience his life-giving presence at work within us, to live in the fullness of joy therein, and to bear the fruit of life, true life, eternal life, a life lived in the true vine, Jesus Christ, our Savior. For as we endeavor and endure in faith in this new year, will our prayer be, I need thy presence every passing hour. What but thy grace can foil the tempter's power? Who like thyself my guide and stay can be? Through cloud and sunshine, Lord, would you abide with me? If you'll pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word and for what you have done for us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Father, we praise you that where you are, there heaven is, that there is a life, that there is a joy that can only be found in the wonder of your presence. So we pray that you, by your grace, may enable us and encourage us to more and more and more to abide in the wonder of your presence as we abide in our Savior, Jesus Christ. This we pray in your son's name. Amen.